Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. This is where we explore third-way leadership in a polarized world, and we ask what it means to keep Jesus at the center through it all. We hope you'll find the conversation meaningful and that it equips you in your context with fresh approaches to facing some of the most challenging leadership and ministry questions of our day. And hey, if you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome! We are a relational network of churches and ministry leaders with a vision to unite equip and amplify a movement that is all about Jesus. You can look us up on social media or head to our website at JesusCollective.com to learn more, find out what it means to get involved, all that good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Well, Ange, it is great to be back together on the Jesus Collective podcast. It has been a while. We were talking earlier. When was it last? I don't remember when it was last. But it's good to be back with you and with everybody and with our live audience and our uh, listening audience who are catching this on our podcast channel a little bit later. Good to see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I give a heads up about what's coming up briefly? Are you excited about it? I like, am let's just get this going. It. Good. Yes. Okay, yeah. Do it. Um, okay, so next month, which would be November, if you're listening uh, on the recording, November the 30th at 2 p.m., we are uh, going to have a podcast conversation with Dr. Samuel Sarpia. Samuel is a Jesus Collective partner. He's also the co-executive director of the Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation. Uh, so having been raised in Africa, having lived in uh, South Africa, having been trained in mm-hmm. conflict and reconciliation uh, and mediation and just transforming conflict and bringing together, having a record of bringing together polarized uh, communities and parties, Samuel is going to talk with us about how do we navigate polarity. I don't know about you, but Ange, I'm seeing polarity everywhere these days really? talking to church leaders <laughs> yes, who are seeing polarity everywhere. And so we're going to dig into this, this topic together. Um, so I'm really excited about it. And then in, in the new year in February, we are partnering with GLN Canada, the global leadership network, Canada to do a three part conversation, a workshop for, for leaders and teams on navigating polarity. We'll say more about that in future episodes. I am doubly excited about this because uh, every time we have conversations with Samuel, he blows my mind and just shows uh, so much practical evidence of places that I need to grow in my own understandings Mm -hmm. of what it means to be a peacemaker. But also I'm very excited because one of the things that we uh, love to do is to listen to our partners about what they're interested in and peacemaking in polarized contexts is like on top of mind for everybody. So I love that we have a tool in which um, to do that here on the podcast and in the learning experiences that you're talking about. I'm so grateful for Samuel's voice in it. So yeah, that is really exciting, John. That's fine. Uh, I am also incredibly excited about today's topic because it's top of mind for us and guests because I, again, when we're talking about like practical uh, ways that I am being shaped by these conversations, I'm really excited about today. So today's episode, this is just a really exciting time. I know it is a really exhausting time in ministry as well, but this is a really exciting time for us to be rethinking church on so many levels. And so uh, some of us are rethinking models. Some of us are rethinking formats. Some of us are rethinking um, theology. Like, it's a lot of rethinking happening right now. But 
But underneath all of that is this question for Jesus Collective of what does it mean to be a Jesus-centered church? And there's so many practical ramifications. And so you can have this conversation on a high level. You can have this conversation on a granular level. But inside of all of the rethinking that's happening in the church right now is this pulsing question for us around Jesus Collective about what it means to be a Jesus-centered church. And that is what this episode is today. Yes. So we are really excited to have Pastor Jeff Locklear from uh, Southridge Community Church, which is in the Niagara region of Canada, of Ontario. And um, Jeff just wrote a book. It is called Finding Our Way. Do you have your book? Here we go. It's called Finding Our Way. This is a great book. And it's Jeff's, um, really, it's Jeff, it's your Welcome, Jeff. And this is like your written, it's your written record of how you have invested uh, the lessons learned over the last 20 years of how to be a Jesus-centered church. And I, I thought it was a great book, and I'm excited to bring it to our Jesus Collective community for them to engage with it. And we are really glad that you've made the time to be with us today. Mm-hmm. John Vance, thanks so much for including me. And uh, hey, everybody. Uh, It's a thrill to be partnered with all of you at at Jesus Collective. I appreciate the shout out on the book. It was uh, actually more of a COVID spiritual practice in the early months of COVID. For real. I I'd Mm -hmm. never I'd never aspired to really be a writer, but uh, wanted to do something productive with the first few months of COVID other than just uh, binge on Tiger King and Michael Jordan (laughs) documentaries. I had forgotten about that way yeah, at the beginning of COVID. Yeah, oh, yeah. gosh. Why don't you like never bring that up again, okay? Uh, uh, we yeah. not do that? I think there's going to be a, a season two, but you didn't hear oh, that boy. from me. So No, I didn't. Anyways, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of where it came from. But uh, the idea now is to be able to share, not in a, not in a kind of a prescriptive way of like, this is like the one and only way to do church, but rather in a descriptive way to say, hey, here's one community story of practitioners that I think other local church practitioners could be encouraged and challenged by in trying to find our way, pursuing the Jesus way and what it means to actually implement and operationalize uh, a faith community aspiring for Jesus to be at the center. Okay, so with that in mind, maybe you could just lay a little bit of a context foundation. I'd like to tell us a little bit about uh, the the backstory before the stuff that we'll talk about, about the how you've walked this out. But maybe give us a little bit of a backstory. Sure. So, uh, like John said, I live in uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, and uh, kind of in the Niagara region of Ontario, Canada. And I've been born and raised here and actually pastored the church that I've grown up in since I was a 10-year-old kid. So our church started in uh, 1980 with a group of founding families that were trying to do church in a way that would uh, kind of engage their children to a greater degree. Uh, My family started attending in 1983 uh, because some school friends in the area where we lived uh, drew us in. And uh, because our friends went there, we wanted to go there. And so kind of the rest was history. But uh, in the mid 90s, the pastor was at the place where they were looking to retire And so, as I understand it, the board had some conversation and kind of striking out with the traditional search committee approach. They looked around at each other in a board meeting and they said, hey, in all of our private lives and in all of our private businesses, 
we're kind of taking the approach where option A is to hand these family businesses over to our kids. And yeah. so if that's option A in our private lives, why don't we give that a shot in the church as well? Maybe that could be option A in the church. And so we began uh, back in the mid nineties, uh, more of a, a formalized process that we referred to as a generational transfer. You might refer to it as succession as well. And uh it started with uh, kind of an apprentice pastor, uh, a teammate a couple of years older than me named Chris Fowler. And then by 1997, Chris was looking for some help with preaching and teaching. And so he brought in uh, Mike Krause and myself. And the three of us continue to be on staff as part of the core of uh, our church leadership today and had been leading for almost 25 years. And so it was kind of a little experiment at first with this cute little band of brothers but uh one thing has led to another and god's been faithful as like i said we've tried to aspire to keep jesus at the center in increasing ways so that's great i love that backstory and um having just been friends with you and learn more about southridge i just love how they handed it over they handed the keys over to to younger generations uh so as we start, like, kick us off with what does Jesus-centered mean to you, Jeff, as pastor of this community that you've been helping to put and keep Jesus at the center of for the last 20 years? What does it mean to you? Yeah, I would say in, in reflecting on that question at kind of a high level, but also trying to be, um, you know, on the ground, so what, like, practitioner, I, I would probably boil it down to, to three things. It's, it's challenged us to reevaluate what it is that we understand Jesus invites people into and mm -hmm. ask ourselves, what, what are we as a local church inviting people into? It's caused us as a, as a leadership to, number two, evaluate what we understand those implications on our lives to be. So what impacts do we expect in the people that we're inviting into this way of life? Are we, are we kind of clear on that? And are we okay with that? And then at an even more practical level, what are we as leaders operationalizing as and, and implementing because of that, because of what we're inviting people into and because of the implications on people that we expect uh, consistent with Jesus way, what does it mean from an operationalized perspective as far as ministry budgets, programming, staffing mm. priorities and things like that. And so I'd want to kind of drill into uh, each of those three things, maybe even in sequence, because in our, in our story, they probably played out uh, in, 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 in a bit more of that sequence over the course of our history. Great. Yeah. So okay. say, say more. <laughs> Back to that invitation then. Well, yep. yeah. I mean, in the mid nineties, I don't know how many of our, uh, participants today can, can track that far back, but in the mid nineties, if you were around the, the church in North America was largely what I would say, contemporizing its worship services. Mm -hmm. Everything was kind of happening in the worship wars of the yeah, the worship wars, the and, drums in uh, the sanctuary. Exactly, yep. you were you were yep. navigating from hymns yep. to choruses, and everything was kind of up in the air around around that era. And and like our church, uh, you know, our initial apprentice pastor Chris Fowler, he was musically gifted and involved in worship ministry, and so he kind of paved the way for us to navigate through that. But really, it was all about. 
defining cultural relevance as uh, bringing kind of modern day uh, features of life into your worship gathering, whether it was a band or, you know, more topical subjects or, uh, you know, even greeters in your parking lot, kind of like there would be at Walmart. Like you, yep. and, and, and the thinking back in that, you know, kind of seeker sensitive, seeker targeted uh, era was really bringing, bringing these best business practices of top level customer service to your church. And yep. like trams you know, in the parking lot. Remember those? Exactly. And so as I understand it, you know, the, the motivation, you know, the motivation was very others oriented and you could say mm -hmm. was consistent with the Jesus way. Jesus is very, very others oriented and uh, expects us to be. But uh, in that others orientation, it felt like over the first number of years that what we were doing was really just patterning ourselves after the consumerism of the best business practices of our day. And I remember a couple of experiences. One was when uh, we had a, a pastor friend from out of town who now has been on our, our lead team for the past couple of decades, uh, hand us a book. And it was written by a guy from Little Rock, Arkansas. And the basic idea of the book was, if your church up and disappeared, would anyone in the surrounding society even notice? Mm -hmm. And here we were implementing these best business practices, trying to be this culturally relevant, you know, contemporized version of a weekend service. But when we stopped to think about it, we were actually haunted by the question, because if we looked around, nobody outside of the people we were directly serving would have any clue that we were making any societal difference or leaving any legacy or behaving in any kind of social asset kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so that ravaged us and made us wonder like, whoa, what, what, what is it that we're actually inviting people into? Are we inviting people to just receive from us or just consume from us or vicariously from Jesus? Or are we actually inviting people into the way of life of following Jesus? Fast forward a few years and you know, we were starting to make some transitions, but still, when it came to our weekend services, we were still focused on just kind of contemporizing them and defining cultural relevance in, in that way. I had a number of neighbors who kind of tracked with our church and, you know, started to participate in our weekend service and actually ended up in our baptism tank. And it was super exciting. And I'm seeing God, you know, affect these people around me. But as life would get challenging for them, you know, in their businesses or in their marriages or, you know, as a church, we would be uh, leaning into, you know, things like capital campaigns for different initiatives that we had. I realized that in none of these instances were these neighbors who'd been baptized and having received Christ, were they defaulting to actually consider how Jesus would want them to behave. Mm -hmm. They were embracing all of the patterns of our world because what I realized is we had simply patterned ourselves after a contemporized society and a contemporized version of church. And we were just inviting them to consume and receive that. And so mm -hmm. it really haunted me, not just in considering if we up and disappeared, would anyone even notice, but in the actual people that we were seemingly reaching we were we were 
we were appealing to their desire to receive right. from to Jesus, take. but never actually inviting them to consider what Jesus offered them uh, as far as his invitation to follow them, to pursue his likeness, to be transformed into his image and to receive the grace that his death made available to forgive and set them free so that his Holy Spirit could invade their lives and be empowered to aspire and pursue to his likeness personally and, and together as a community. And so just at a real practical level, as a timeout, I think for some of us as church leaders, we've got to just take that back to our leadership teams and say, what life are we actually inviting people into? Are we simply defining what it means to be relevant to our culture by patterning ourselves after the world around us and just contemporizing our gathering? Or are we inviting people to not just receive what Jesus offers, but actually aspire to follow him? And as a church, facilitating that invitation in our weekend gatherings. Yeah, it's good. So, I love how you're tying that. I just, all the way through your book, I really appreciated the way that you juxtaposed what you had been trying yourself, what you were seeing around in other churches, but always with this deep respect and sober critique. I just, I, it is worth noting for those of you who haven't picked up his book yet, it is such a refreshing way of communicating a sober critique of some of the patterns that we see in the church, as well as we see in ourselves, as we see in our leadership systems, which I love that we're going to get to that conversation about like how these things are systemic and how we go about that. But um, specifically, I have really been grateful for the mode with which you have chosen to posture those with deep respect and sober analysis. But um, showing the juxtaposition is actually really helpful. Well, and I hope, uh, I hope, Ange, that you're hearing me, first things first, starting with critiquing ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like when I got into ministry, there was a certain degree of the person of Jesus that the church didn't make sense of to me. I was kind of one of those people that, uh, you know, Gandhi describes, I, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I kind of felt like this gap existed. And so me and these friends who started to take over our local community, we really got into ministry to, to, to do nothing more than close that gap in our context, among us, in ourselves. And, you know, our, our pursuit personally and collectively, our pursuit of Christ likeness has been nothing more than one consistent gap analysis after another, <laughs> right? I talk about our leadership style as the bottleneck approach. What are the yeah. biggest bottlenecks from our church revealing Jesus to the world? Whatever they are, we need to fix those. And then if we fix those, we can reevaluate what the new biggest bottlenecks are. That's kind of been my leadership style. And admittedly, it is a bit critical, but uh, it's all in, in that aspirational goal goal of being personally and collectively sanctified by the spirit of Christ to actually become more like Jesus and to incarnate more of him uh, in the part of the world where he's placed us. So, so I have a question. So like what I'm hearing is there's a, you started in a certain mode and maybe like many of us, we got swept up in the kind of the nineties church growth mode seeker movement 
uh, you started to wake up to like what Dallas Willard says is like the gospel we present initially to people is the gospel that we have to, that we will keep them with. Right. So if we present the consumeristic gospel, then that's what we feel like we have to keep presenting so that they'll stay and not leave and whatever. And then you woke up to that and you started, you started making changes. So what, what changed in you first? And then how did that show up and how you were doing church differently then? So I would say that when we were haunted by that question, I saw in the chat, someone referred to the actual book. Uh, John Ray posted uh, the church of irresistible influence by Robert Lewis. That is the book that yeah. uh, I was referring to. If you want to pick that up. Um, we realized that if our church up and disappeared, no one would even notice partly because of where our church was located. We were kind of on grape and wine, uh, the grape and wine route in the Niagara region of uh, Ontario. And if you looked at our windows, all there were were vineyards. Like there literally were not even any people around to affect in a social asset kind of a way. And so as our church through this, you know, contemporization and seeker effectiveness, as we were growing like year over year after year in ways that you could kind of, brag about with your pastor buddies we were inwardly haunted wondering are we even a church and so mm. we actually solved our facility congestion issues not by expansion but by relocation we sold our building and we moved our church to about a mile of the downtown core of the city of St. Catharines in hopes of putting ourselves in proximity with people on the margins and one thing kind of led to another there as we started to get our people involved with some partners in the city of St. Catharines. And after a couple of years, we ended up opening what for the last 16 years has been the largest homeless shelter in the Niagara region out of our church building mm -hmm. and actually engaging in an up close and personal way with people on the margins. And I would say, John, that both the move and the opening of the shelter started to tip us off on this second kind of practical takeaway that I would want people to anchor in. Not the invitation of Christ, but the implications on your people. Because if you're actually inviting people into the Jesus way, what you have to appreciate is that the Jesus way is all about pursuing Christ in a, in a growing relinquishment of your privilege for the sake of those of less privileged. I've heard Daniel Strickland talk about the way of Jesus as the leveraging of your power for the powerless. So as soon as we recognized that we were barely a church by the standard of if we up and disappeared, would anyone notice? The first thing we did in relocating was actually invite our people into a fundraiser where back in 2003, we raised two and a half million dollars over a three year commitment off 101 families. Wow. You do that math yeah, do for the people who yeah. led capital campaigns. Yeah. That's a hugely significant per giving unit ratio. And what people were doing for really the very first time in our church's history was collectively relinquishing some of our privilege for at the time a fictitious underprivileged. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, when we when we opened our doors to start sheltering the homeless, again, that was a step of relinquishing our privilege for now a less fictitious underprivileged. Right. And, and what we've had to appreciate over and over and over 
And I find that even today, the majority of my pastoral conversations with people are kind of correcting their expectations on this because back in the day when we were serving up this kind of spiritual menu of uh, Christian goods and services for people to kind of consume, maybe even unconsciously or unknowingly, what we realized is that we were actually a church that was organizing around relieving the stresses and meeting the needs of our largely privileged people. We were oh gosh. Okay, hold on, hold on. I don't want to kill your train of thought, so like keep your train of thought. But two times now you have said sentences that I am like, I know that I'm asking you basically not to be a pastor with this, but I'm like, say that sentence and can we please just have like five seconds of silence? <laughs> because like, what, Jeff? <laughs> so your whole sentence about our growing relinquishment of our privilege for those without privilege is like... <laughs> Like, I just wanted to, like, just pause there. But holy cow, like, can we just steep in what you just said? Like, can we just steep there? That is, can you just say it again? Literally, can you just say it again? <laughs> yeah, like, if I look back again, <sighs> With, a, with, with what was a sincere motivation to be others-oriented and to serve people. And I think about even things like our message series, our topics, you know, five tips for a healthy marriage or how to be yeah. a great parent or yeah. how to find, you know, more meaning and purpose in life or how to move from success to significance or like so much of what we focused on and so much of the programming that we operationalized and, you know, the, the classes and courses and workshops and everything. If, if I'm honest with ourselves, it, it was all about meeting the needs of our people, which was largely addressing the struggles of very privileged people, as opposed to what you guys and gals are about looking at the person of Jesus and being ravaged and inspired by passages like Philippians two that say he who in very nature, God didn't consider that level of privilege, that equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing took on the form of a servant and gave himself up to death on the cross so that we could have life in him. And, and, realistically like we weren't dying too much and so when we were ravaged by if our church up and disappeared would anyone notice and had that fundraiser relinquished some money you know relinquished some comfort relocated put ourselves in proximity relinquished some comfort again to be in proximity with the homeless relinquished some facility you know move part of our facility in order to open the shelter things like that all of a sudden, we started to experience this totally different way of life that was all about increasingly learning to, here's the comment, Ange, to relinquish our privilege for those of less privilege, which we started to increasingly understand was the very way of Jesus that he was inviting us into. 
Yeah. So I say that because on the one hand, we need to be clear on that invitation and clear and clear and clear. And, you know, when it comes to what we say and how we say it and the message series and all those kinds of things, there's all kinds of practical takeaways just on the invitation. But we also got to appreciate the implications of that, because when you look at the implications of Jesus way of life and you look at the implications of Jesus teaching, it resulted in a legacy of comfort to those who were afflicted, but in many ways, affliction to those who are comfortable. Yep. And if we have churches full of comfortable, you know, generally privileged 21st century North American people, are we as church leaders prepared for the level of affliction that we're actually going to facilitate for them as we invite them into a pure Jesus-centered way of life. And what are some of the afflictions that you helped to facilitate that, that turned, yeah, that turned your, um, your invitation or your op, your implication that turned it into like a, the lived experience, like the, the weekly lived experience in your community. Cause you can give up, you can give up money in a fundraiser and a capital fundraiser. And that's beautiful. And you can have a homeless shelter in your facility and you can give up your gymnasium or whatever for that. That's, that's great. But that's, that's then, you know, and it's there, but in the weekly rhythms of the discipleship, say formational forces that you're helping to facilitate in your church, how are you helping people die? in that way well the first era you know once we moved to st Catharines and we opened up this shelter the first era was just combating the nimby principle in every one of us right the not in my NIMBY? backyard i know okay. that uh i know that NIMBY. daniel strickland oh. is starting this movement called yep. NIMBY, yes. right for in yes. my backyard right and just that posture is a huge shift it is from it is big you know, cultivating my privilege and protecting my privilege at all costs to, you know what, I'm laying down my privilege for those of less privilege. I'm going to leverage my privilege for those of less privilege. I actually want to embrace people in my backyard. That'd be a great practical example. And I mean, that, that type of, that type of example, that's translated into all kinds of other forms in our context, because as we started to become more sensitized to dynamics and issues of marginalization, which, by the way, aren't economic or even sociological, they're largely relational, mm-hmm. right? You address issues of marginalization with friendship. Yep. And so, you know, as we became friends with the homeless and understood that, you know, in kind of a same kind of different as me sort of way that we can actually experience the wonder of mutuality and reciprocity, God started to awaken our eyes to to all kinds of issues of marginalization that he's moved us along. Marginalization and inequality between men and women that has launched us into a decade-long movement of female empowerment. Uh, Marginalization when it comes to LGBTQ community that's resulted in shifts in policy and in practice to foster a greater degree of safety and inclusion of LGBTQ plus people. I mean, so many different examples that again and again and again have resulted in up-close and personal pastoral shepherding of our people 
to kind of move them along the change management curve, getting out of their comfort zone for the very transformational work that God wants to do. I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in the last, especially about the last five years with people who will have lunch with me or they'll have a meeting or breakfast and they'll present their issues with the church, right? Their issues. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with X, Y, and Z. Usually in the and backyard I, issues kind of things. Yeah. And I've, and I've, uh, and I've, I've grown to kind of summarize my response by saying, you realize church member X, you realize that the very things you're presenting to me as a problem to you as a church leader are the very point to me. What is a problem to you as a congregant is the point to me as a pastor, because I'm trying to move you out of your comfort zone and I'm trying to stimulate you relinquishing more of your privilege where the notion that privileged people would have to you know, sort of be forced or, or, or motivated to get out of our privilege. I mean, that's so counterintuitive and so countercultural that instinctively we assume that that's a problem. And we go to our pastor, we present that as a problem, presuming that the pastor is going to want to assuage that issue and kind of, kind of make deal the pain with that go problem. away. Yeah, yep. make the pain go away to, to keep us in our comfort zone. So, in addition to the invitation of Jesus, are we really clear as church leaders of what this? kind of puts us in what the implications are on the kind of impact that we're going to have on the people that we serve. Okay. So let's, let's go from the book. Uh, let's, and let's, let's pick a, uh, pick Ange, what's something from the book that stood out to you in how they're operationalizing this that we could talk to Jeff about? Well, this might feel like a deferment, but I just really loved the phrase love beyond belief. Yeah. Um, that that phrase, first of all, it took me a while to catch out how catchy that is. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't catch like the it's catchy. <laughs> it was so impactful to me um, in its implications. I mean, again, we're back to the implications. And at some point you're like, I really, yes, okay, let's go to one of these anchor like causes that that comes up. But I'm also like, well, systemically, like let's talk about what some of those like and you didn't use the systemic structural sentence, you used something else. But love beyond belief is the phrase that is like, that is so compelling and so messy. So this yeah. might be like a deferment of like, Jeff, talk to me about that phrase and yeah. where it shows up. Yeah, because that, that phrase, when I read it, it sounds like it sounds like what we call in Jesus Collective Centered Set. It sounds just right down the middle of what we mean by that. So I'll use the first phrase. I'll get there in a second, but I'll use the first phrase that you alluded to that that term anchor causes, because for us, that was probably the, the biggest operational change in our context. So, like I said, we're ravaged by what we're inviting people into. We decide to relocate instead of expand. We open up this homeless shelter in our St. Catharines location. And as things continued to grow, uh, we made the transition to become multi-site. What was super cool, though, is as we started to host public meetings around these new uh, Southridge locations, instead of wondering how we were going to offer video teaching and, you know, where the worship venues would be, the, the, the kind of single and recurring question that people asked would, was, what would the homeless shelter equivalent be at these new locations? Oh, cool. And it was really encouraging because it really kind of tapped into the very reason why we had relocated in the first place that people were starting to catch this privilege relinquishing vision 
And so from that point on, we actually launched every one of our Southridge locations, starting with a societal need that that location existed to meet. Beautiful. How many do you have? How many locations? So right now we have three. We fluctuated up to four at one point, but we have have three right now. We have one 20 minutes south of uh, St. Catharines in Welland and one 20 minutes west of St. Catharines in Vineland. And each of them, similar to how St. Catharines is organized around the issue of homelessness, we have our Welland location organized around some food programs uh, for uh, low-income and sole-support families. And we have our Vineland Anchor Cause and all of its programming organized around uh, seasonal migrant farm workers. And so you have these kind of core programs that we've described as our anchor causes that have totally reframed the reason why we even are a church. And so for most people, when you think, oh, what we're operationalizing is this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, one hour a week gathering, Southridge is actually organizing and operationalizing the functioning of these social assets around which we wrap a community driven by this hopefully inspiring hour on Sunday. And so we've kind of inverted things. I know that, you know, Bruxian in the meeting house context, they like to describe church not as where the chairs face the same direction, but when the church right. chairs face, face each other yep. at Southridge, we're launching churches with no chairs. <laughs> and then wrapping chairs around them. And it, and it actually is, a, it's a different way of, of thinking about what the church actually is. So you take back before we, we relocated, if you would have looked at our operating budget, there was not a dollar invested in fostering anything to do with compassion or justice, not a dollar. We actually had this Thanksgiving Sunday offering that we took as kind of a secondary offering for two denominational missions agencies as a goal with no financial commitment upfront attached to it. It was just a second offering. If you want to give, go for it. That's it. That's all the the, the financial investment that we had into that. Today, if you looked at our operating budget in 2021, over 70% of our dollars are invested in our local and global anchor causes, in the programming, in the staffing, and in the facilitation of that way of life. Wow. And from hold on, on time out. You said 70% of your operating budget goes to your anchor causes. Seven, seven, zero. And if you're a senior church leader and you're in the the budget pie world, you know how significant of a shift in what it is that you're operationalizing and what it is that you're staffing and programming and and inviting people into that just that one financial pie statistic actually is. And so, you know, for people to appreciate that to become such a missional church and such a uh, such an anchor cause center church requires the, the, the implementation of operationalizing very different things than just Sunday after Sunday, gathering a bunch of butts and seats at that point, then you become, you, you, you have such a different sensitivity to marginalization Ange, that you realize that not everybody thinks the same way about everything. And it was at that point when we were really starting to be sensitized to issues of marginalization and we were really starting to become a church of a, a much greater diversity that we realized that, you know what, not everybody thinks the same things on traditional kind of Christian issues. 
And it caused us to go back to the drawing board and actually, again, starting with the person of Jesus, to evaluate what are the things that everyone in a faith community of Jesus followers actually has to believe together? And what are the things that actually allow room for a diversity of perspectives? And that's where this love beyond belief idea came from. So we were ravaged by uh, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, for example, where the apostle Paul is trying to combat division in the Roman church by telling people to not break fellowship over what he calls disputable matters. Well, if you study the text, they're arguing over two issues, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and observing Sabbaths, which for us today might seem like totally irrelevant issues. But especially to Jewish Christians in the day, those were both Ten Commandment level issues. Mm -hmm. They were big deal faith convictions. And what he was inviting them to do in saying, number one, have a conviction but number two, don't break fellowship over disputable matters. Instead, number three, actively foster one voice of unity and worship and service to Christ. You know what he was asking the Roman church to do? Yep. He was asking them to be the church with people that they believed were sinning. Because people who held that alternative view that they held, who lived that alternative view out with its own integrity, to that person were sinning. They were either sinning in their licentiousness or they were sinning in their legalism. And Paul was trying to herd these Christian cats by saying, no, there is actually something that should supersede these ancillary non-salvation faith issues, even as strongly as you hold those convictions. And what is that? It's the primacy of the person of Jesus and the law of love. So that's where we kind of coined this phrase, love beyond belief, because we believe that the person of Jesus and the primacy of his law of love should supersede ancillary beliefs that otherwise would divide a faith community. And to push it further, we believe that a faith community that invites people in to absolutely having to believe the same thing on everything is actually the textbook definition of what you call a cult. That's what a cult is. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I have to do it again. Like, you have to pop this. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, if, to even just take it. Okay. So I'd love to do this because we've only got five minutes before we're going to Q&A. And the, the chat has some great questions in it. So, like, we want our 10 minutes of Q&A to let the community <clears throat> engage with your thoughts directly. Um, so I'm loath to do this because I think it's going to blow it up, but there's, you were describing these, what seemed like what were 10 commandment level, like we would, they would, the original people would not have said, this is like a disputable thing. Like they would have said, this is a hill we're going to die on. Um, those are not, we're not splitting churches over eating meat, uh, sacrificed. (laughs) So, but we are splitting churches over things that I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to say love beyond belief defiance as a disputable topic. So can you just give us one of those topics? And I know we're going to have to leave a lot on the table and I know I'm like blowing us up just as we're wrapping up, but give us one of those topics. that's like splitting the church that you are working your way through. Fine. Have convictions, but the law of love is reigns premier. Can you give us one of those? 
in four minutes. Sure. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, we navigated through this. We, we navigated through this with our denomination around how to cultivate a greater degree of safety and inclusion for LGBTQ plus people. And I thought, I thought that as we kind of landed that and kind of got to the finish line together in a compatible way with our denomination, I thought that as a church leader, I had summited the Everest of all things divisive <laughs> in my church leader life. And then the pandemic hit. And, and I kid you not, like today, yeah, navigating issues like the vaccines, they are even more polarizing in yes. contexts like ours. So we've recently navigated uh, what we've described as a, as a certification of safety, where uh, as a community, we want to take a step of certifying safety among us and especially our ministry personnel. But we tried to navigate that certification of safety with a love beyond belief appreciation that people do have different convictions on issues like vaccines and issues like vaccines to be clear are not essential for a person on their deathbed to know and get straight in order to see Jesus the moment after their last breath. They're not are you sure. So you really, you really have to be, you really have to be kind of ridiculous to, to categorize whether something is a salvation essential or not. And so in a desire to both cultivate a greater degree of safety and navigate love beyond belief and continue to foster a bit of a come as you are culture. Our certification of safety approach that we're inviting our church and our ministry personnel into is governed by that in a way that actually has fostered a greater degree of oneness and unity and diversity instead of our church blowing up over an issue that is blowing up not just churches but blowing up our society Everybody, right now everything you, yeah. you actually you actually can take a different approach and see and 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 really palpably feel among you the the harmony the mutual respect, the orientation to the other, the kindness, and, and the mutuality when a community starts to embrace the theology and the culture of something like Love Beyond Belief. Okay, so practically, how are you, how, how do you take Love Beyond Belief and apply it to the vaccine aspect when you have a divided congregation on this you recognize that it's not a salvation issue you recognize yes. that people are going to have different convictions you seek to cultivate respect and space for both convictions while not necessarily having or not having a corporate conviction that's where this gets a little bit complicated so as a leadership we've certainly been un unapologetic to encourage people to get vaccinated yet we know that some people hold an alternative view and we want to be respectful of that. And so in our policy, you know, this certification of safety is different than a vaccine passport because it's not vaccination, vaccinated or out. We've actually created ways where together both the vaccinated and unvaccinated can take steps of certifying safety, either through proof of vaccination or through proof of negative tests. And we're making tests available in our community so that we can actually be one on this and foster unity in diversity on this instead of saying, no, there's only one way. And if you don't follow the one way, you know, it's kind of our way or the highway. Yeah, that's good. Great picture. That helps. Yep. Okay. Paul. Sorry, John. Did I cut you off? No, you're good. You're good. 
Okay. We want to be able to engage with some of the gold that is in the chat and they are engaged. So Paul, have you been able to pick a question or two that welcome friend? Yeah, I have a few questions and I'm going to start off uh, with this first one. How did Jeff's church move from a consumeristic spirituality to a Jesus centered one? How long did it take? And did you get resistance? Resistance to Jesus and Tristany. No resistance. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, Paul. Jesus I would never say I would say that process happened both in an instant and in a lifetime. Both in an instant and in a lifetime. It happened in an instant in some of us because we were so ravaged and embarrassed by the question of if our church up and disappeared, would anyone even notice? And thought moments before that, thought we were an amazing church, and moments after that, weren't even sure we were a church. Whoa. So that that it, it happens as you become convicted as followers of Jesus and ultimately as church leaders in that moment of conviction, it can happen like a born again, again, uh, type of moment of epiphany. And it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle in my own life and my own family. It's a lifestyle in our own community. And there are still so many people in our community who have been around for so long. And yet as leaders, we look around and we say, you know, I'm not sure if they have the first clue who it is that we're trying to become, that they're still in consumeristic mode. They're still in make me comfortable mode. They're still in address my needs and serve my stresses mode. And so it, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's kind of an instant and kind of a lifetime and kind of a lifetime of instances, I would say. Maybe just as a follow-up question, uh, what would you say it cost your church? Like maybe just really practically, did you, you know, some years, did you have to adjust budgets? Did you, uh, did you have to reorganize around that? Did, did you find that when you had clarity around your vision that people opted out because comfort is appealing? The biggest, the biggest thing it cost is relationship. That's that's I mean, it's cost lots of things, but the biggest thing it cost is is relationship where people with whom you thought you were going to do this covenantal community run with yeah. for a lifetime uh, opted out and you realized that this commitment to doing church together was more conditional than you expected. And when you put faces and names and family connections and friendships woven into that, that's, that's by far the, the, the most significant cost. Okay. Next question, kind of in the same kind of vein. Um, and this person asks, what advice would you give to the leader that wants to wake up their leadership team or their whole congregation? How would you raise an awareness of privilege and how would you afflict the comfortable in a gracious Jesus's way uh, that allows for process? Certainly there are some good books that you can, that you can share on, on those kinds of subjects and on the underlying gospel and theology. <laughs> right. right. There, there, there's, there's one example uh, in our context, 
I would say one of the most significant contributors, and again, this is counterintuitive because so much of our journey has been in becoming a missional church and in operationalizing anchor causes and compassionate justice and changing culture in that way. But what, what's been equally critical has been the game-changing difference that our Sunday mornings have played. And before we relocated, I remember that we did a series in the Old Testament uh, prophetic book of Micah. And a couple of years into our relocation in St. Catharines, we did another series through the Old Testament prophetic book uh, of Amos. And uh, particularly the Amos series, we called it Affluenza. And uh, mm -hmm. that series, people, I think that series was in like 2008, 2009. People in our church today would still talk about the legacy of that series. So mm -hmm. it, it probably shouldn't surprise us, but exposing people to what the scriptures actually say. You know, Jesus talked about nothing more than issues of faith and finance and heart for the poor and relinquishing privilege. And so when you start to stare at Jesus teaching or some of, you know, especially these Old Testament pro prophetic books, start there. And instead of doing a series on five tips for a happy marriage, uh, pop open one of the Old Testament prophetic books and see what God does with it. So good. So you, you mentioned this tension that you're holding in your church uh, on vaccines and all the ways you're navigating. Um, and there's been like the comments have definitely like lit up and there's a lot of curiosity about this. Like, so people are wondering like, Hey, like what's your position on masks? And some people are saying like, uh, like they're actually surprised why, why this has become such a huge issue. Um, most people said pre uh, pandemic that issues of LGBTQ inclusion, they thought that was going to be the mountain. Oh, Maybe I'll just ask you to lean a bit more into that. What would you say to this particular cultural moment of why we're so like ready to pounce and tear apart on something like a vaccine or masks? So this is just my own armchair quarterback perspective. I'll, I'll just make that disclaimer. And again, when I'm making these kind of comments, I'm, I'm most critical of our context. So I don't want people to interpret this or receive this as being judgy. Um, I feel like the pandemic and the government restrictions and stip stipulations and things have pushed on our society's innate sense of privilege really hard in a way that in some contexts and especially or maybe more particularly in some Christian contexts have reverberated in a backlash that is is surprising us but is kind of predictable when you when you understand the underlying privilege that it's kind of challenged yeah. I, I I've been experiencing in so many different environments lately that hell hath no fury than a privileged Christian scorned. <laughs> and our it's capacity to preach. It's so no, time we updated that phrase. <laughs> for real. No, uh, hell hath no pure uh, hell hath no fury like a privileged Christian scorned. And our capacity to protest and advocate when our rights are threatened. You know, I was amazed at how many people were protesting government lockdowns right around the time that uh, I remember in the first summer, the, the Black Lives Matter movement was uh, reemerging or this past uh, summer season where we were discovering all of these uh, grave sites and indigenous re residential schools. Mm -hmm. And I was just struck by 
how easy it is for some of us as Jesus followers to immediately protest and advocate when our rights are threatened, but not give a whoop about protesting or advocating in any sort of way when someone else's rights, let alone the marginalized rights, are threatened. And if we take this back again to the person of Jesus, what did he invite people into and what did he model? Did Jesus advocate for you know, moments when his own rights were threatened? Not no, at all. Never. And he invited people to die to ourselves so that we could live. And I think, Paul, that the pandemic is actually an underpinning of illustrating the defaults of how people understand faith in Jesus and how we're to relate to him. Yeah, I think you nailed it, man. That is that's so good. And I think, that I think so that's what, you know, for all of our pastor friends listening right now or who will listen to this uh i think that's why there's such a a polarization and such a a weariness because uh as we navigate forward people who they would have never suspected are coming out of the woodwork and saying in in these off the wall unrelated ways to to how they've been operating making accusations that it's like where did this come from but maybe it is like that that pressure that's getting at like some of those entitlements, some of the privilege that's uninspected right in the heart of, of some who are not aware that it's there until it's challenged until it's threatened. And then, and then I think our pastors are feeling like they're the brunt of it. And that's why I said, John, like, you know, some of these people have been on a journey with us for decades. And so I'll ask, like, have you been tracking with anything that we've been trying to be about? Because, all of our defaults through the pandemic and all of our defaults for the last 20 years have been increasingly seeking to default according to the way of Jesus and be this privilege relinquishing people for those of less privilege. Why is that just hitting you now? And you come to realize that in, in certain ways, because we still gather, because we still offer a contemporary worship experience, because we still offer childcare, student ministry, or whatever, yep. we, we still have facilitated enough of the consumerism and enough of the assuaging of their issues and struggles and stresses as a privileged person that they never had to buy in to the deeper invitation of the way of Jesus. And so even now, whether it's masks or vaccines or whatever, every conversation I'm having pastorally ultimately reroutes itself in the person of Jesus and what it means to be Jesus centered. I love it. We we have to, (laughs) yeah. And we circle back to where we began. We have to end there. And uh, Jeff, thank you. For those of us who are who are live, could you just join me in thanking Jeff? Oh, thanks a lot, guys, for being uh, being with us again. The book is <laughs> finding finding our way. Um, and yeah, Jeff, we just uh, appreciate the work that you're you're doing. Uh, thank you for helping show how one church is trying to be Jesus centered and letting those of us on the outside kind of peek into the last 20 years of your journey, the ups and downs, and for being so, like you said, self starting with yourselves, like critiquing yourselves. That's such a posture of humility. And so thank you for that. It's great to be friends with you as Jesus collective and in the conversation. And uh, we bless you. Have a great day. Thanks. Love you guys. Appreciate you very much. All right. So we're going to, 
we are going to transition in a minute to our breakout rooms. If you're if you're uh, with us in the live audience, we would just love to continue this conversation. I mean, if your mind's not brimming with like, oh my goodness, what does that mean? And we got to talk about this. Uh, let's let's do it. And so, if you want to stick around for just like about twenty five more minutes, we'll go into uh, a couple different breakout rooms and just chat this further and work out some of the implications and hear what each other heard from Jeff. Uh, so that kind of sinks in a little bit deeper. And this is what we do as Jesus Collective. We're just a, a, a relational network. And so we collect when we uh, get together in these ways. For our listening audience, this is where you sign off, but with an invitation to join us anytime that you can for our live experience. We really enjoy being in this conversation together. But whether you are live or a recorded audience, we're just grateful that you are part of our community and that we're traveling together. Okay, friends, if you'd like to stick around for our breakout room, then stay put. If not, you're welcome to sign off. But Zulima's going to start assigning out breakout rooms for the conversations where we just share about what we're learning, the questions that we have. We peer support. We just chew together, like John had said. So you are welcome to stick around. If you stick around, you'll be assigned a breakout room, and we'll just chat. That is what we will do. John, while Zulima is doing that, yeah, goodbye, friends, for those of you that are going. you want to just repeat the date and topic of our upcoming podcast? Yes. That would be November the 30th. I believe it is at 2 p.m. Uh, and, yeah, the topic is transforming polarization. So how, um, how do we navigate, the, like as Jeff said, this polarized time? And how do we do it in a way that puts Jesus at the center, that works for unity, that aims at like reconciliation and believes that if, if we're putting Jesus at the center, it will lead to a transformation of our attitudes towards each other uh, if we can just keep him at the center. And that transcends the things that are dividing us. So we're going to talk about how to do that, what that looks like, and then kind of plant some seeds for our workshops further into February when our partnership with Global Leadership Network Canada, where we will spend eight hours in three different workshops, eight hours total, helping you and your teams learn tools for how to navigate polarity uh, in your context. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can hear stories, find info about upcoming events and workshops, maybe even explore getting involved through partnership as a church or an individual leader. Listening is such an important part of our journey as an organization. So please feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and your feedback. Drop us a message on social media or you can email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Here's to keeping Jesus at the center.